Well, um, the book of Romans, you may be surprised to know, was written to the church in Rome. Did you know that? Know that? <laughs> um, that's important to realize because at the time it was written, things in Rome were, have been happening that made an interesting situation. So I said this before earlier in our series, but in Rome, the um, Jews had been kicked out by Claudius. And by the time that Romans was written, the Jews were being allowed back in to Rome. And for the church, this was important because the church in Rome started off with both Jews and non-Jews, and probably mainly Jewish, but when the Jews were kicked out of Rome, it became a purely Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. And then the Jews were allowed back, and so Christian Jews came back as well, and suddenly the church was becoming mixed again. There were Jews and non-Jews. And Paul writes the letter of Romans to that church. And as, as you go through Romans, you see there's a big issue throughout the letter about how Jews and non-Jews relate to each other. You get that right at the beginning in that one of the key verses in Romans, Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's the good news, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So right from the start, Paul's saying, look, what I'm writing to you here is about the gospel, is about the good news, is about needing to believe, but actually you've got to deal with this issue that there's Jews and there's non-Jews. And when we come to Romans chapter 9, the issue of the Jews becomes paramount. But the issue is a problem. It's the problem of so much unbelief in Israel. So much unbelief amongst the Jews. And so Paul comes to tackle that in Romans chapter 9. And it's interesting, actually, look at Romans chapter 9 and through to 10 and 11, that there's so many quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, if you just look at the footnotes in your Bibles, it gives you the, the references to the quotes. And you can see how many there are. In our passage alone, there are 11 different quotes from the Old Testament, just in 29 verses. That's quite some going, isn't it? And you probably picked up on a lot of those. But what's Paul saying here about the situation? What's Paul saying about this problem of Israel's unbelief? I want to do three things very quickly um, from the first few verses. First of all, we see Paul's passion in verses 1 to 3. Um, Paul says, quite powerfully, doesn't he? I could wish that I myself, in verse 3, were cursed and cut off from, the crop for, from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Paul is saying here, look, I am really concerned, I'm really upset that the, so many Jews aren't accepting the good news about Jesus. Now, Paul's putting across his passion about this so powerfully, maybe partly because he's being criticized. Maybe he's seen as the apostle that goes to the Gentiles. He's often called that. Um, maybe they're saying to him, well, you, you go to the Gentiles, you preach to the Gentiles, you don't care about your Jewish um, nation anymore. Paul says, no, I do care. I care desperately for the Jews. Actually, soon after writing Romans, Paul went to Jerusalem. And you know the story in Acts, he went to Jerusalem um, and he went into the temple and people accused him, or well, it wasn't true, of taking Gentiles into the temple. And there was a big riot about it and he ended up being arrested and being in prison for quite a long time and eventually taken to Rome as a prisoner because he had this reputation of being the one who went to the Gentiles rather than the Jews. And yet Paul, whenever he went to a new place, went first of all to the synagogue. He went first of all to preach to the Jews. This is good news first for the Jew, he says, then for the Gentile. 
And yet his experience again and again, an experience that must have been so devastating to him, was that so many of the Jews rejected the good news of Jesus. And so he says in verse 3, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Actually, this echoes something from the Old Testament. Do you know the story of Moses after he came down from Mount Sinai and discovered that Israel were worshipping the golden calf? He went back up the mountain and was speaking to God, and one of the things he says um, as he went back up the mountain was, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. You see, Moses there is saying pretty much the same thing as Paul. Or Paul's saying the same, pretty much the same thing as Moses. And Paul's sort of saying, that I, I have as much care, much compassion, much, much desire to see the salvation of Israel as Moses did. Um, I really care for the Jews. And yet there's this problem of Israel's unbelief. But secondly, this is a problem not just because of Paul's own personal passion, but because actually Israel were meant to be privileged. Paul lists the privileges in verses 4 to 5. Uh, there's his adoption, there's his sonship, there's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Uh, Israel were the ones that God had been working through. Israel, Abraham's descendants, were the ones that God had promised would have a special land, had brought them into the special land, he'd rescued them from Egypt, he'd given them the law. The Ten Commandments. He made them the, to be holy priesthood. He made them to be representatives of a nation. They were meant to show the world what God was like. They had a very privileged position based on the promises to Abraham. And, and the privilege had its height in the Messiah. The Messiah was to come from them. And Paul, of course, believes that the Messiah had come from them. Jesus Christ. And this is the pinnacle. And look what he says about the Messiah in verse 5. He says, There's the Patriots, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. He's saying that the Messiah is God's. Well, actually, he might not be saying that. <laughs> um, if you look at your footnotes or you try and translate from the Greek, um, you'll discover that it's not quite clear how you're meant to translate that phrase. It could be translated that the Christ is, the God, is God, or it could be translated that Christ is amazing, God be blessed. It's not quite clear, and there's, there's different arguments, and commentators can't really decide on that way. So it's not a good verse to use to show that Jesus is God. There's, better, there's much better ones to go to, like John chapter 1. And yet Paul is saying something powerful here. He's saying that the Messiah is the pinnacle of God's plan. God who is above all. And yet the Jews have rejected him. What's going on here? And the third issue for Paul is, does this mean that God's promise has failed? If God had promised that to um, Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, nation which he did, and promised Abraham that he would bless him and bless his people, then is God now turning away from Abraham, that promise? Are his people no longer going to be blessed? Are the Israelites no longer going to be carrying the promises of God? You see, Paul's experience was that Israel or the Jews were rejecting God, were rejecting his Messiah. And yet Paul turns it around here. Rather than looking at things from below in chapter 9, he turns and starts looking at things from above. Because Paul is clear, God 
is in control. God is in charge. If Israel are rejecting God, or at least some of Israel are rejecting God, then this must somehow have to do with God's choice, God's control, God's sovereignty. But how can God not choose his people Israel to be the ones that believe in his Christ? Well, Paul turns to tackle that in verses 6 onwards. And first of all, he shows us that God has never chosen all from Abraham's family. He does that by going right back to the first um, couple of generations of Abraham's family. Um, so Abraham had two main children. He actually had one or two others as well, but two main children, Ishmael, which I spelt wrong, sorry, and Isaac. And then Isaac had two children um, who were twins, Esau and Jacob. And Paul is very clear. God chose only one from each of those generations to carry the promise. The question in verse 6, isn't it, is has God's word failed? Has God's promise failed? And so he looks at Abraham, the promise that came to Abraham, that his descendants would fill the land. And yet the promise doesn't go to Ishmael, but it does go to Isaac. You see, Paul is saying that not all are children of promise. Um, the first quote comes from something that said, said to Abraham when he was having to deal with the issue that there was too much conflict between Ishmael, who was his concubine's son, and Isaac and Sarah, who Sarah was his proper wife. And Sarah was saying, get rid of the slave woman. And you can imagine the sort of family dynamics going on there. And God says to Abraham to encourage him that actually Ishmael will be looked after, but not to worry about it. He promises him that actually it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac is God's choice. And Isaac is a child of promise because he came when Abraham and Sarah had least expected it. Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children all their lives, and then when they're really old, God appeared, or three angels appeared. It's a weird, really weird story in Genesis, isn't it? And they said to Abraham, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. What did Sarah do? Laughed. And yet a year later, she had a son. And she called him Isaac, which means he laughs. Isaac was the result of this amazing, impossible promise. He was the child of promise. But people might come back to Paul and say, well, you can't really say that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. Ishmael was not really a proper son, was he? He was the son of the concubine. He wasn't the son of the proper wife. Of course God would choose Isaac. He's the son of the proper wife. So Paul goes to the next generation. Isaac married Rebekah, um, and they had twins together. Again, after some time when they couldn't have children, but God blessed them with children. Um, and the, the passage actually literally says that these, these two boys were conceived at the same time. Seems obvious, but it's making the point. Um, in a way, there's nothing to split them up. And yet God says... To Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. That's the wrong way round, isn't it? As speaking as the older in the family. <laughs> um, and looking back at the tradition, the oldest was the one that got most of the blessing. The youngest wasn't, yet God says, the older will serve the younger. God says, I'm going to choose Jacob 
to be the carrier of the promise. I'm not going to choose Esau. And later on, Malachi, um, writing much later on, when he's writing to Israel and trying to persuade them, actually, they need to realize how much God loves them, how much God has done for them, reminds them that um, God could have chosen Esau, but he chose Jacob, their, their father, their ancestor. That's how much he loved them. He said, look, God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. It's not that God was being nasty to Esau. This is a Jewish way of saying um, that he decided to choose Jacob over Esau. Um, He's not really saying he hated him in that sense. And yet there's that real choice there. God made the choice to choose Jacob and not Esau. God doesn't always choose everyone from Abraham's family. And so Paul's saying, look, now you look at the Jews and you look at how many of them reject um, the Messiah. Many of them are failing to become the true people of God's. Well, that's nothing new. God has always chosen some and not others. God chose Jacob and not Esau. And he goes on to say, it's not in that they were particularly, God's choosing the ones that are particularly good Israelites. Actually, we read the Gospels. God isn't choosing the particularly good Israelites, is he? Jesus hangs out with the sinners and the tax collectors. The wicked ones, in a way. He's criticized for that. And often they're the ones that believe in Jesus, whereas the the good ones, the well-to-do ones, the religious ones, are the ones that reject Jesus. And Paul makes it clear, doesn't he, as he talks about um, Jacob and Esau, he says, look, he didn't choose Jacob because Jacob's works were better. That's ridiculous. He chose him when he was in the womb. You can't do good works in the womb. Maybe you can somehow imagine that, but you don't, do you? You can't follow the law in the womb. And yet, even when they're still in the womb, God chose Jacob over Esau. And actually, when you read the story of Jacob, um, there's not much to commend him as a good person anyway. God's choice is a free choice. It's a gracious choice. And you see, actually, to really believe in grace, we need to believe in God's choice. Because if, if we're saved because of our own choice, then it's to do with us and not God. It's to do, do with our wise decision-making rather than God's work. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8-9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Of course, you have to believe to be saved, don't you? We believe that. Paul said that a lot in Romans. But then he says this, Not from yourselves... It is the gift of God. That's faith is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So, so we believe. That saves us. But why do we believe? Not because there's anything good or special about us, but because God has given us that faith. God has made us believe because he chose us. This comes through as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. If you turn back over the page. Paul says there, those he predestined idea of God choosing people before the beginning of time he also called and those he called he also justified well how are you justified you're justified by faith so God's calling in necessity gives us faith so that we can then be justified and those he justified he also glorified God's grace depends on God's choice God's faith We have faith and salvation completely as a gift of God, completely because he's chosen us, not because we've chosen him. But if God chose some to be saved, what about those he didn't choose? 
Did he choose them for his wrath? How do we feel about that? Well, this is something that Paul begins to tackle in the next verses, verses 14 onwards. Um, And the question we have is chosen for wrath. And he turns to another Old Testament um, situation, to the story of Moses and Pharaoh. But before he comes on to that, he quotes um, from Exodus, later on in Exodus, when God appears to Moses and God reveals his character to Moses. And God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Um, There's a sense here of God sort of underlining that it's, it's his free choice, it's his decision, he's in control. And he can do whatever he wants. He can have mercy on whomever he wants. He can have compassion on whomever he wants. And yet, God's freedom is limited by his character. You see, God doesn't say this. He doesn't say, I will punish people whether they are good or bad and bless people whether they are good or bad. That would be complete freedom, wouldn't it? That would be God doing whatever he wants. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. You see, God's justice means that he cannot punish good people. So it would be wrong for him to say, I'll punish people whether they're good or bad. And yet, as Paul has made abundantly clear in Romans... There's no such thing as a good person. All of us, from Adam down, are sinful at heart. We all deserve God's wrath. God cannot be unjust if he punishes us. Yet God can show mercy if he so chooses. Although even then, God's punishes the sin we do through the cross of Jesus. So showing mercy to some sinners and not others is God's free choice. I'll show mercy to I'll show mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But it's not unjust because everyone deserves to be judged. Yet this once again stresses that our salvation is not based on human desire or effort, as Paul says in verse 16. It's not our choice, but God's choice, his calling. And how do we respond to that? Well, we need to be grateful, don't we, of God's mercy on us. We should realize afresh fresh how um, privileged we are to have received God's mercy, how fortunate we are to be in that position and respond and give our lives in response to that. Paul will go on to say that um, after Romans 9 to 11 in Romans 12 verse 1 where he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In view of God's mercy. If you've been called, if you have come to believe in Christ, you've received the mercy of God. God has chosen you and that's a wonderful and amazing privilege. Do you realize how great a privilege that is? Has that made a difference to your life? Would it make a difference to your life from here on? But Paul pushes this further, doesn't he? Um, Later on in verses 22 to 24, he talks about objects of wrath. 
and objects of mercy. Some people are chosen by God to receive God's mercy, and yet others, it seems, are chosen to be objects of wrath. In chapter 19 and 21, he makes it clear that God's, this is God's prerogative. God is the one who's the potter. We're just a clay. God can do whatever he likes of us. God is in charge. Um, we, who are we to question God? We're just mere human beings. God is the creator of the whole universe. We need to realize our place in these things. Yet why might some remain as objects of God's mercy and others objects of God's wrath? Well, Paul takes us back to another foundational Old Testament story, the plagues on Egypt and the Exodus. The Israelites, led by Moses, were the children of promise. And yet they were slaves in Egypt. And so God chooses to rescue them from Egypt and to persuade Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let them go. And the story becomes a spectacular trial of strength with God sending plague after plague on Egypt, but with Pharaoh refusing again and again to give in until the tenth and terrible plague came and the firstborn were killed. Why did Pharaoh resist God so much? Well, the Exodus story repeatedly tells us that God hardened his heart. Was God making Pharaoh a sinner in doing that? No, of course not. Pharaoh was already a sinner. I mean, he was leading a country that enslaved all the Israelites, for starters. But we're all sinners at heart, aren't we? No, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, it was part of God's judgment, part of God's wrath. He was simply confirming Pharaoh in his sinful attitude, an attitude which at heart is resisting God. And actually, right at the beginning of Romans, Paul talks about God confirming people in their sin, helping people to see the true horror of their sin. So in Romans 1.28, for example, he says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Is that much different to what Exodus says about Pharaoh, his heart being hardened? This was God drawing out the true implications of Pharaoh's sinful nature. What other purpose did God have in hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, Paul quotes from Exodus 9, verse 16, but let me read to you um, the fuller context from that. This is verses 12 to 16. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send a full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see how the fuller context, the fuller story, helps us to understand what Paul is saying in verses 22 to 24? Paul talks about God's patience, how he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. 
Pharaoh, in a sense, was chosen to be an object of wrath by God, yet rather than simply wiping him from the face of the earth, God showed great patience to him, sending plague after plague to try and persuade him to let Israel go. And even then, not totally wiping him from the, the Egyptians from the face of the earth, like he says he could, but only the firstborn. But God does all this for a purpose, that the Israelites, those objects of God's mercy, might see the true power of God in their rescue and salvation. See, often we need to be rescued from our enemies, and that can only happen when our enemies are judged. If you read the Psalms, you see that again and again. David cries out that God will um, bring justice and bring judgment on his enemies so that he can be saved. And as the objects of God's mercy see, particularly the Israelites saw the story of Pharaoh's failure to stand up for God and what happened to him and what happened to Egypt, they were able to proclaim both God's mercy and glory far and wide. Both the objects of mercy and the objects of wrath work together in a sense to serve the same purpose, to make known the glory of God. See, God is in control, and God will use events for his purposes. Romans 8, verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God did that through Pharaoh, and through rescuing Israel from Egypt. God did that through the cross, I could take you, we haven't got time to go through all of it, but you could take you through the story of the cross. I read a book talking about free will and sovereignty that takes us through the story of Judas and all that goes on at the cross. It reminds us that the people chose to put Christ to death, didn't they? Both the Romans and the Jewish hierarchy and the crowds all called for it. And yet Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan and God's purpose. God was in control, actually making Jesus an object of wrath. To show the true horror of people's sin. And he also to bring about salvation, the objects of his mercy. God is in control. God's choice rules. So God chooses some for mercy. But is his choice limited to just the descendants of Abraham. Paul, in the last few verses, makes clear that it is not. Um, he quotes from Hosea, and um, this idea that those who are not my people will be my people. Actually, this is a slightly odd quote, because the, in Hosea, the people that are referred to as not my people were the ones, were actually the northern tribes of Israel that had been rejected by God. So they were Israel, but they'd been rejected by God as not my people. But God's saying, actually, I will bring them back one day and they'll become my people again. And yet Paul is saying that, actually, if, if God can take those who aren't his people, even though they were Israelites, and make them his people, then he's doing the same thing with the Gentiles. Those who weren't really Jewish, um, those who weren't part of the people of promise, those who weren't descended from Abraham, yet God, in his free choice, is choosing to bring those who are not his people to make them his people. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a glorious thing. We are those who are called. We are the objects of mercy, whether we're Jewish or not. If we come to believe in Jesus, we've done so because of God's choice and God's call. 
But has God completely rejected Israelites? Paul says no, and he points to Isaiah and this idea of remnants, um, that within the people of Israel, many will fall away from God. And Isaiah was writing this in um, 600 BC or whenever, and saying even then that many of the Israelites will, will lose their faith, they will lose their contact with God, they will lose their place as God's people. And yet God will make sure there is a remnant, that there will be some who remain, who are true to God, who are the true Israel. And Isaiah says, look, God will make sure that Israel does not become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wiped out. There were no descendants. But God says there will always be descendants from Abraham because of his promises. And there will always be descendants from Abraham who are part of the true people of God. Paul himself, in the beginning of chapter 11, says this, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is an example of that remnant, and he wasn't the only example, was he? The 12 apostles were all Jews. Um, even in Rome, there were many Jewish Christians. Even now, there are Jews becoming Christians 2,000 years later. God's promise to the Jews will stand. They will become truly his people, but only through Christ. And God can guarantee that because God is in control and God chooses people. So Paul begins with despair about his people, his despair that so many are rejecting Christ, and yet he ends this section at least with a greater hope that God will maintain many from Israel as his people. Of course, all this might leave you feeling, well, is it just down to God? Have we got no choice? Have we got no free will? That seems to be the implication of this passage, doesn't it? Uh, and Paul certainly has majored on God's choice and God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. And yet we do need to hold it in tension with the rest of the Bible, or even the next chapter. Because in chapter 10, Paul talks about another reason Israel don't believe. Their choice to reject God, to reject Jesus. Um, there is this tension between human free will and God's sovereign will. In a way, it's a paradox. How can we understand it? Well, I think the simple answer is we can't. We're not God. Many people have tried to and grappled with this, and all sorts of philosophers have come up with all sorts of ingenious ways to try and sort it out. And yet, ultimately, no one's come up with an answer that satisfies many. And yet, we do need to hold on both to the importance of God's sovereignty, that God is in charge, that God chooses, and that's why we're saved. And yet, also, we do have free will. Our choice is important, and when we call people to faith, we're calling them to make a choice. We're calling them to believe. We're calling them to repent. We're calling them to choose Jesus. Choice is important. How it fits with God's divine choice, we don't quite understand. But the world's full of paradoxes. And actually, even if you don't believe in God, the paradox still remains. Are we just the result of forces of nature that happen to come together in a random way to be the person we are? Or are we agents of our own free choice? Um, it's not clear even if we don't believe in God. And yet, 
Paul's clear, God is in control. God will win out. And God will choose to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Let's pray.